0: Hello and welcome to Ask the Experts, a podcast from Pennington Choices, providing property surveying, consultancy and project management services to organisations nationwide.
1: Hi everybody, I'm Caitlin, I'm a consultant at Pennington Choices um, and I'm joined today with Paul Nolan, so I'll let him introduce himself.
0: Hello everybody, my name is Paul Nolan. Um, My background is water hygiene. Uh, For the past 26 years of my 54 year working career, has been water hygiene. My title is IHEAM registered authorizing engineer. Uh, I sit on the chair of the board of registration for future AEs. Um, I'm a co-author of a book that that was printed in Brazil on water hygiene. I'm a past author of the British Standards.
1: So what Paul doesn't know about uh, water hygiene probably could be written on a thimble, perhaps. Um so Paul actually is um interestingly is sort of who got me into um being excited about water hygiene. Um probably quite sadly, I really enjoy it. I think it's really interesting. Um and I think because I'm quite a risk-averse person, um, the fact that you can manage water well um sort of is in tune with my sort of um life view of you know things being neat and ordered so um without further ado we are going to basically explain um what the basics of water hygiene management are um, and as the uh, title of the podcast suggests we will also be doing some myth busting so this will contain sort of things about things clients do wrong things things that um, people managing water hygiene should know or perhaps think correctly and what they can do to try and sort that and um, so it's basically um, everything I wish I'd known when I first started my career in water hygiene. So the basics of water hygiene I think um I'm sure you'll agree Paul are very simple but and very clear but it's really important that you get them right. So number one for me and let me know if you agree Paul is knowing your asset that is the key thing for water hygiene is making sure that you understand what is in your asset if there are any water outlets, what the water system is, um, and that you've got a clear scheme of control in order to manage it. Do you have anything that you'd like to add to that,
0: Paul? Absolutely. And and, and by saying manage your asset, what's important is that that's a generic term that we have to emphasise that what we're looking at is your hot and cold water systems, so that people understand that, that the asset is one element of a building or a structure. And the reason we need to know what is all the components of an asset is that when we're looking at risk and I think it's important to mention at this point that I believe that there are three risks in, in, in water hygiene and the three risks come under general risk, your inherited risk and your residual risk and I break that down further still by saying general risk is what happens if you go out every day and if you don't open the door you'll not turn the lights on you might as well not bother living. So. You you have two things with an asset. You inherit that asset as a manager or somebody buying a building, that becomes known as inherited risk. And then you have your residual risk, which is when you're in that property looking after your building, you're resident, therefore it's residual. Once you break down those three elements of risks, then your understanding of your asset is how do I manage that risk?
1: Yeah absolutely and i think a lot of the time particularly in clients that um, i've worked with um often it's the case that clients don't fully understand what their asset is what you know if they've got a tank if they've got any um hot water outlets if they've got any thermostatic mixing valves which we can get onto later and you know what that looks like so i think the key thing that you know everyone needs to be aware of is being crystal clear on what is contained within your asset and what the associated risk is And knowing how best to manage that so that leads us then on to um the second sort of basic which is being really clear on what you need to do to stay safe so typically guidance with um a cops and guidance rather and a cops are going to tell you what you need to do to stay safe and typically that's going to be what you work towards and obviously that's um, heavily caveated by the fact that there are things you can do to stay safe that perhaps are different to what is um, in guidance and Um, approved codes of practice. Um, But equally, it needs to be um, providing the same results. Um, So I think with water hygiene, um, the key thing is is understanding, you know, HSG 274 and also understanding the L8 approved code of practice now i've done training with you paul on these and i know that you're very passionate about these two documents in particular Um, so are there any things um that you think are really key basics people need to look at within these documents
0: yeah absolutely I, i think i think the first thing is the definition between what is a guidance and what is a piece of law Now, the approved code of practice L8 is a document that is produced by the HSE and so is their technical guidance, 274. And what L8 does, it says very clearly at the start that you don't have to follow this this document. You can do any sort of management procedures you wish. uh, But if you don't comply with the level that we set within this document, you will be found at fault. So I say to people, well, why reinvent the wheel? Um, we need to look at L8 as our principal highway code, if you like, as if you were driving a car and look at the 274, which is the ways of looking after assets as a guidance as well. So, yes, for me, although there's a plethora of other documents out there, such as Bisria and SIBZ and other people writing documents which have got um, good value, I say stay with the basic principles of the HSE.
1: Yeah, so if you keeping with these documents you can't go far wrong. Is there anything in particular um, that you think um, in either L8 or HSG 274 are the key areas that people need to be looking at? I think one of my favourites is understanding um, what is classed as a low-risk system. I think sometimes people look at water hygiene and and, um, water systems and think oh you know I don't quite know how to manage this what am I going to do and they think that they need to put in really elaborate Um, control um, measures in order to manage them and in actual fact if it's a simple system with a a tap, uh, and, you know, water hand, wash hand basin, sorry, and toilet, um, and that's all you've got. Yes, complete a of risk assessment to evidence that you've considered any um, risk associated with um, those outlets, but equally have the foresight and understanding to know that actually that might be all you need to do and just keep that document as a living document that you review from time to time. Is there anything like that, Paul, that you think um, is a real key piece of information that people need to be considering?
0: But, well, you, you, you've you've nailed most of what LA does tell you, and and absolutely. And what I would say is, that the message within the document of LA it teaches you three things that you need to have, and it's very subtle. You need to have three elements of good training, good competence, and good communication. That's the essence of that book all the way through its eighty paragraphs. the The thing that I find in my industry is that water treatment companies risk assessors come into a building, be it a simple shop, a hairdressing shop or a small building. And you mentioned the word low risk. Uh, For those that may wish to read L8, they will find that on page 10. It says a a, a wash hand basin and a toilet, as you've rightly said, is a very low risk. But what it also says in L8 in two occasions is that if your risk is as low as that, therefore wash hand basin and just general domestic premises, That's all you need to do thereafter, no more monitoring. But what I do find in this industry is that they will put a a levy of monitoring on you that may cost you several thousand pounds a year for no value whatsoever. If your risk assessment decides that the risk is low, as, as you suggested, Caitlin, do no more. But the industry entices you in to doing monitoring that's not required.
1: And I think that's a really good point because you mentioned about training um, and competence. And I think a lot of the time, and competence is a bit of a tricky word to use because it suggests that, you know, people perhaps doing those roles that don't have training um, aren't competent, whereas, you know, they very may well be. Um, in actual fact, when we talk about competence, it's having that ability to scrutinise and challenge what it is that you're told by experts um, or or rather perhaps sometimes so-called experts in the field um, who are you know legionella risk assessors who say you know you need all these elaborate control schemes that in actual fact aren't required and i think when it comes to um legionella training um, it's so key to make sure that you're getting the right level of training and um, for the right people so whether that's between and i think actually we can probably call this our um our next basic and um, it is training and making sure that you're, you know, city and guilds accredited or you've got training from a reputable provider and who's going to make sure that you know um, all the risks associated with um, water systems, but also give you the ability um, to challenge those who tell you to do something that perhaps actually you might not need to do. I think in um, compliance and and sort of the landscape at the moment generally, Registered housing providers, hospitals, you know, anyone with water systems, um, is challenged um, financially at the moment, particularly with the cost of living crisis and hikes in energy. Um, and I think if you've got additional spending in areas that perhaps you don't quite need, um, it's really important to be able to challenge appropriately so that you know funds could be better spent elsewhere. Um, and I know that's something that we, you know, heavily sort of stress to clients. Um, so so definitely, um, so that definitely that's important.
0: It, it is, and, and and I think the ways to look the, the the issue we have in the industry is that when people go to so-called experts and ask them for advice, they take in good faith what they believe is a robust scheme of control when the scheme of control was not required in the first place. And yeah. one of my pet my pet subjects is that clients are always told to clean and chlorinate their tanks every year when there's no need to. It's it's a complete waste of money. And when I explain to people that the debris in the tank has come from the mains pipework out in the streets, which is the water that you're getting supplied, all it's done is move that debris, which may have been in the pipework for 50 years, quite naturally underwater shearing into your water tank. It's harmless debris. And and I find that these wherever I go with all my clients, I can usually guarantee that whatever they spend per year, I will lower that by 80% to
1: 90%. Yeah, and I think that's uh, that's one of our, by the way, um, myth-busting uh, spoilers there. So, um, yeah, I would completely agree. And I think the problem is, again, is about training and understanding. And, you know, we're so fortunate that we're able to challenge those sorts of things because we're probably both water nerds, but in reality... Um, a lot of people have just pulled and stretched so um significantly in their role that they don't necessarily always get the opportunity to to delve as deeply as we do which is hopefully why this podcast will be so helpful um for people and again if you need any information um you can always um get in contact so i think that's it for the um for the key sort of basics we've mentioned about having a robust scheme of control um particularly where necessary um so we'll heavily caveat that. If it's not necessary, you do not need to do it. Um, so that'll lead us nicely on some of the myth busting, which I know is uh, our favourite um, area to talk about, Paul. So um, I'll let you do this one because I know this is your favourite. Um, so the myth is, if I am not compliant, and that is with water hygiene, then I will be prosecuted under L8 or HSG 274. What do you say to that? How are you going to myth, uh, bust that myth?
0: I, 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 th- I think I should quote Donald Trump and say fake news. Uh, and and uh, one of the things he did say, although this is a political phrase, uh, fake news, we, we have myths and fake news in our industry. And water treatment companies, in every risk assessment they do, they will say that you are not doing this in accordance with L8 or you are not doing that in accordance with HSG 274. Uh, Please sign the cheque here for the work, but ignoring all of that, if the HSE do take you to court, they will never use their own documents ever, L8 or 274, in the court because they are guidance and you don't have to use L8, they make it clear these are not mandatory documents. So. As we said right at the very start, if you don't equal or improve their principles of LA inside their, their their drafting and their words, their paragraphs and clauses, then then they will will be interested. So they take the role of this way. They take the three statutes, which is the Health and Safety at Work Act, etc., 1974. They take COT regulations and they take the Management Health and Safety Regulations 1999 as their bible for a contravention of breaching of water hygiene matters. To give you an example, the responsible person, if you're not appointing a responsible person, they will take you to court under the management regs. If your monitoring is not being carried out as you said it would be monitored, because there is no set rule on how you monitor a system. So, for example, if you said I'm going to check all my taps once a month and you don't do that, you're breaching your own policy. And they will see that as a breach of cost regulations because you put those controls measures using COSH. So although it's very subtle, the HSE will never, never, never use L8 or 274 in anger against you.
1: But they will acknowledge if you have used them, because typically, um, and, and if, well, they never get involved if you've used them well, do they? But um, they are to be used because they are guidance documents. um, But don't assume, um, as many wrongly do, that that is what you will be um, prosecuted under. Um, They are guidance documents um, and approved codes of practice. And I think that's a really key, um, really key message. So our next um, myth to bust is about tank cleaning and being one of the most important controls. Now, Paul alluded earlier to this. for those with eagle, uh, eagle ears um that um this is just not the case and i think some of the uh, photographs used in hsg 274 suggest that heavy ta- soiling in tanks is you know a, a real breeding ground for legionella which of course it you know it could well be however the debris being within that tank isn't necessarily what's going to cause that um, and i think it's really important that people understand and um, that whilst you know tank cleaning um, is often a common um, common uh, control used. It's not necessarily actually going to be the one that keeps you from um, proliferating bacteria, um, leading to um, Legionella um, and and you know by extension Legionnaires' disease. So we mentioned earlier about one of the basics being having a really robust scheme of control. Um, but what's really important is that you understand what is actually required. Um, as part of that. So temperature testing, ensuring that your temperatures reach the required limits, um, is going to be much more effective than a tank clean because ultimately, if the water um, has already got to the to a dangerous temperature, if you like, um, where proliferation could occur, then whether it's in the tank or not is going to be um, neither here nor there. Um, and cleaning that tank again won't clean the entire system. Um, and I think people get that wrong and um, quite frequently. Um, is there anything you wanted to add to that, Paul?
0: I do. Yeah. I, I think the other thing that the, the client is misled with is that when people come in and claim they want to do some disinfection, what they never do is actually give you any warranties um, and they come in and they disinfect. And, and disinfection has very limiting success. You know, far, far less successful than most people realise what's important you mentioned before was it's around temperature requirements. And when people tell me that they've got Legionella growing in a tank, the first thing I ask is what's the temperature of the tank? And they all tell me something between 15 and 22 degrees. And I know that Legionella will not enumerate or proliferate at those temperatures. They go into a state of cold, viable, but not culturable. So when people make claims around tank cleaning, I see, in all my experience, no requirement to clean tanks if Legionella control is your issue. If we've had a dead animal within that tank or someone has always said dropped a a tin of paint in there with contractors, then then yes, there is an element to clean it out and and deal with that. But in all my experience, if the tank is within temperature, regardless of mould or whatever dirt is in that tank, you will not grow Legionella. So it's a misconception that a dirty tank will relate to Legionella. It is also a fact by the Department of Health that says, and they put it in writing, when companies do TBCs, which is total viable counts, there is no association whatsoever with Legionella. So water treatment companies will tell you, oh, I've got a count of 300 TBCs making you believe this is a risk of lesionella when it's not. So tank cleaning is probably one of the biggest fake news items I can actually discuss. There there isn't anything more, and I use this word carefully, more abused by water treatment risk assessors in claiming they are a lesionella risk. They are not.
1: So there, mic drop everybody. So. Next up um, is uh, organisations or individuals sometimes thinking that um, they need to only follow L8 and HSG 274 in order to remain compliant. Now, we have said that those documents are great and you know provide guidance and um, give really sort of good oversight as to what's required. But I think a lot of people, and particularly in my experience, Paul, I don't know about yourself, don't fully appreciate the um, BS 8580 standard. Um, on Legionella risk assessing, and um, what should be covered um, as part of a Legionella risk assessment. Now, that's the British standard for uh, Legionella um, risk assessing. For those um, sort of not in the know, as I used to uh, used to be. So basically, this document is really important for understanding your Legionella risk assessment, and it's broken down into a principle called CATE, which stands for all
0: contamination, <laughs> amplification, transmission exposure and host susceptibility.
1: Exactly. Now, if your Legionella Risk Assessment does not cover each of these areas, then you need to be thinking, is this the right Legionella Risk Assessment for me? And spoiler alert, it definitely isn't. So when reviewing a Legionella Risk Assessment, it's really important to scrutinize and challenge them to make sure that they answer each of those areas it's like i like to think of it as a match Um there's a, there's a sort of photograph i've seen online where there's about seven matches lined up and if you pull one of the matches away then even if the first match is lit the others won't light and that's how i like to think of the cate principle because essentially those um cate those five areas sorry are required in order for legionella um bacteria to become a problem it's not to say that it won't be there but susceptibility of host if you're walking Um, around a building that has legionella but you're a fit and healthy um, individual of an age that you know perhaps wouldn't be considered um, as as a risk then the likelihood of you catching legionella even if you're in a room with a shower and loads of aerosols is significantly lower um, and I think people sort of misconstrue that so I'd say make sure um, that you're not just following LA and HSG 274, but you're also considering other documents that are um, of benefit, particularly in the UK, of course, um, or in Britain, rather, with um, the British standard. Is there anything that you wanted to add to
0: that, Paul? No, that's perfect. The other thing I would do is that the British standards now, they, they have made it very clear that when you assess a risk assessment, risk assessment it used to be by doing numeric scores, so when you got to a magic 80 out of a hundred, you suddenly were in a zone of high risk, which, and again, was fake news. The British Standards now have realised this is 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 not correct, and they say you cannot use numeric scores. And they have, and the risk assessor, which makes complete sense when you read the book, says before they make a claim of risk they then have to substantiate why that risk in their opinion is a risk so in previous iterations it was always whatever the risk assessor said is a risk it must be a risk now the british standards because i was one of the past authors went down the road of saying no they have to justify that risk because they can't just shout uh, this is a risk and spend 20,000 pound there has to be my favorite phrase is what is my exam question and when i asked risk assessors why they've made the claim my exam question always is justify it please and where did this evidence come from to make it such a claim and so I would agree with the principles of that the other thing that the British standard does which is really important is that they stop risk assessors putting into a risk assessment things called written schemes which is your maintenance requirements monitoring which just by surprise surprise they can offer you a great deal of money that's not required as well so Again, the British standard is very important on two words now, impartial and independent. They take those two words into the British standard and make sure that the risk assessor is impartial and independent and not trying to sell you chlorine.
1: Yes. And to be clear, we are only talking about um, a handful, I'm sure, of unscrupulous uh, risk uh, risk assessors. Um, This is not to say that the uh, industry itself uh, it's absolutely. a problem. Um, absolutely,
0: absolutely not. No. Just to just
1: to fight off those uh, potential uh, defamatory claims.
0: <laughs> yes, indeed. No, no. It, as as with everyone in business, everyone's looking for an opportunity, and and there are sadly in this industry. I've been around it twenty six years. Not them all, of course, but you do get the occasional one that comes along and 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 tries to make commercial advantage from a risk assessment which has been poorly written, and and the client in good faith, takes on board those suggestions. Yeah, so that's a big caveat. When they claim there is a risk, they have to justify it.
1: Yeah, I think that's really key. And that leads us us onto our final sort of myth now, which is, I can just rely on my contractor, they will sort it for me. So I think with Legionella in particular, well, any area of compliance, um, a level of understanding, knowledge, and sort of qualification and experience is absolutely required by anybody um, outsourcing any sort of management function at all so legionella risk assessments need to be reviewed be that a desktop review and um, yes. going out on site to um, supervise and monitor somebody doing a legionella risk assessment um, who i'm sure on that day will do it exactly as they will just as i would <laughs> um but it's really important to make sure um, that you have full control um in-house um, of your contractors and that you've got your kpis all of your um, service level agreements, all that sort of stuff um, to make sure that you're able to appropriately scrutinise, challenge and monitor um, your contractors, because ultimately it will be the owner and the responsible person who is responsible. Is there anything you wanted to add to that,
0: Paul? No, I I think what we need to do is we, 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 when you have a risk assessment, another, another thing that, again, I stress to my clients is they will try and encourage you to renew not review your risk assessment every two years. And there is no requirement whatsoever from the HSE to do that. You can put together a review document of looking at is your risk, assess- is your risk assessment still valid? So your building is still the same, nothing has changed, you've not added a new wing or a new 20-bed apartments or whatever it is you're going to put on your properties. You can then say, we've reviewed this on a regular basis, once a year, it'll take you 15 minutes. What's important is that with any change you make to any risk assessment in anything that you do, you don't put it onto the shelf and forget about it. You constantly look and say, has the change that I've done, has the risk assessment, has that moved to change my residential risk? In, in, and, and that's known as residual risk because you're a resident in that building. Once you've done that piece of work, you can then say you've reviewed it. Now, what's important is, is that, the HSE will look at you looking at as a living document approach in that you are constantly having a look at it. So for example, I always refer to it as a car. When you put fuel in your car, you do not forget to refill it. You are inadvertently, involuntarily looking to see how much fuel is left in the tank. And in cars today, they give you a little red light to say it's low. It's the same with with risk assessments, with management of a water system, You can't just say, I've done it now, put it away and forget about it. You've got to keep reviewing and be pragmatic and sensible. The HSE will never take you to court for looking at something that you, even if you looked at it and reviewed it in a poor way, they wouldn't scold you for that. They would say, look, you've done it, but try and do it a little bit better. And, And another thing that people think is that the HSE will give them advice. The cruel world is that they will not give you advice because if you ever went to court they will be culpable that they gave you advice so that all they will do in a rather cold way is tell you that these are the things that you should do in regards to compliance with not the law so you should have management in control you should have training you should have competence you should have communications but they won't tell you how to do it and and, and i think this is the mistake that people make that, that very easily the top tips for me is that is that they are pragmatic. They review it and they never get complacent about it and forget about it.
1: Absolutely, and I think that's a perfect note to end on. So thank you very much um, to everyone who's listened, and thanks so much, Paul, for your time and and sharing and imparting your knowledge. Um, I know it's been it's been really interesting, and and I hope it'll be really helpful for everybody. So I, I hope that's myself, so. Yes, so that's it from us. Um, Thanks very much, everyone.
0: Thank you, Caitlin. Bye-bye. Thank you for joining us today. If you would like to speak to one of our in-house experts, please get in touch either via our website or across our social media pages. Pennington Choices. Our expertise. Your solution.